Well, church, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you're here to worship with us on this Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Exodus chapter 8, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10, we are in the eighth plague uh, as we are walking through uh, the book of Exodus, and it's been quite a journey. And uh, in the last, we're really beginning last week, we have begun to see and observe the intensification of the plagues. We've seen... um, uh, there's some more consequences being piled up in, in these plagues. And if you're new with us, I want to say welcome. We are thrilled that you are here. Uh, and so we would love to invite you, if you want to be with us, to go back and listen to some of these ones that we've been in the past because these are all building upon each other and these are all building upon something that God is wanting to teach um, the Israelites. He's wanting to teach the Egyptians and kind. He's wanting to teach you and I. And last week we saw the plagues, the famous plagues, begin to intensify and we saw the first shedding of human blood. So the first shedding of human blood. And uh, they are going to continue to intensify in the chapters uh, preceding, including this one, the eighth plague of the locust. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to read all 20 verses and then we're going to walk through and unpack it. Exodus 10 is another trans. Remember that. And what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. That was last week's plague. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all of your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from this day they came on the earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? And so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go, Moses said. Uh, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land, and 
all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. And locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been seen before, nor will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. They ate all the plants of the land. They ate all the fruits of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plants of the field through the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And not a single locust was left in all of the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. So, as we've been journeying through this, we have talked about the fact that we've got this uh, cage match, if you will. We've got this contest between God, the one true God, and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh thinks that he's going to win. Pharaoh thinks that he is going to be able to prevail. And remember, just some cultural context, some understanding of what's happening. Pharaoh thought that he himself was beginning of the book and how it was set up. And we knew certainly it was going to take place when Pharaoh, I believe it was in chapter 5, says this. I don't even know who your God is. I don't even know your God's name. Why should I listen to you, Moses? You are my people and you are my slaves and you are my servants. I've never even heard of the name of your God. And so, no, I'm not going to heed your advice. No, I'm not going to listen to the words of your God because I'm a better God. That's Pharaoh's posture up until this point. And, um, <clears throat> and here, what we're going to see and what we've been seeing is God is vindicating his name. He's vindicating his name against the idols of Egypt, that all these people bowed down to these false gods and even bowed down to the false god of Pharaoh. And then what we have here in this eighth plague is interesting. We almost have a theological introduction to this eighth plague. We're given a little theological side note. It's only two verses, but it's packed full of truth. I know we just read 20, but in this introduction to this plague, we're given really the purpose and the understanding of what's happening in these plagues. And the main point that I think uh, that is trying to be driven home here is that this story and our story and our God is sovereign over all. His word is true. His word and decree comes to pass no matter what comes against it, no matter who comes against it, no matter what God you claim to serve the God of the Bible, the Hebrew God, his word is true and his words will come to pass. The plague accounts, if you think about it, I know a lot of times we dismiss them where they seem so antiquated and they seem so silly, um, but they are so God-centered. They are so God-focused and that's the whole point of these is that our God and his words come to pass no matter what comes up against it. He, has the, he can control nature, water, land, sky, everything. He's in control. 
Now, it doesn't mean there aren't other really legitimate and good applications in this passage. We've looked at a lot of them thus far. But I believe what these plagues especially are trying to teach us is about the sovereign rule of God in our lives and in our world. So let's walk through this together with the time that we have. So the purpose of the plagues, the first two verses, verses one and two, we're given this theological introduction, not simply even to this plague, but I believe everything that's going on surrounding the plagues, and we're given this general framework to interpret what God is doing. And interestingly, Moses is directly and singularly given instructions on how to educate the future generation to come in what God is teaching them in this passage. That's pretty remarkable. So the purpose of the plagues and the purpose of God's sovereign providence is explained in verses 1 and 2. Let's read it again because it's important. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh. Now, our translation says, for I have hardened his heart. It could also be translated, because I have hardened his heart. Go into Pharaoh, because I have hardened his heart in the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly or how I have made a mockery of the Egyptians." with the signs that I've done among them, that you may know that I'm the Lord. So this plague account begins, it starts with this astonishing directive. These are remarkable words if you think about it. Go, go, Moses, go to Pharaoh because I have hardened his heart. That's a hard word. That is the worst news any preacher could ever get. Michael, go to the people because they will not listen to anything you will ever say. Godspeed, right? You're like, what? I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. No one wants to go into a room full of people that are against you and will not believe anything you say. That is precisely how this plague account begins. Go to Pharaoh, Moses, because I have hardened his heart because he's not going to listen to you. And that's how this particular passage begins. And notice the connection. Go to Pharaoh because I have hardened his heart. It is precisely because I am sovereign, God is telling us. He's highlighting the sovereignty. God is even in control of Pharaoh's heart. God is in control of the land, the sky, the water, and in men and women's hearts. Pharaoh's heart included. Though he thinks he is a God himself, he is not. I control his heart. The plague accounts are remarkably God-centered, showing us the huge nature of God. I am in control, Moses, in sending you to Pharaoh, and I am in control of even Pharaoh's heart and how he will receive you. And now notice, though, that God's sovereignty, now God's sovereignty, what do I mean when I'm saying God's sovereignty? Um, it's this theological idea that I, I said at the very beginning, that God is in con- total control. His sovereign rule, like so when a king is sovereign over his lands, the, the rule of the king, the king's decree uh, comes to pass over his dominion. 
right? His word is enacted by his people because the king is sovereign over the areas that he is given charge over. God, according to the Bible, our God is sovereign over everything in the cosmos. He created, he made it from nothing. He formed it, he fashioned it. He's in control and sovereign over you. He is sovereign and in control over me and he is in charge. Yet, at the same time, and this is where our minds go, right? It's tough to understand. Man's responsibility is still on us. So God's sovereignty, and this is, no, this is highlighted in no greater way than right here in Exodus chapter 10. God's sovereignty does not undercut Moses' responsibility to go, even though he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Still told him to go. You're to go. It establishes Moses' responsibility. God's sovereignty establishes his responsibility, okay? Go precisely because I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Those are hard words, but they're ultimately good. Why? We're gonna see. God has a decree, and the decree impacts Pharaoh, and it impacts Moses. Nevertheless, go and proclaim the word of God. Go and proclaim the word of God. Now, God is not responsible for Pharaoh's sin. Pharaoh is. Moses is to go to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh's heart is hard. So Moses and Pharaoh's actions here are not undercut by God's sovereignty. They're established by it. We see a beautiful example of God's sovereignty and human responsibility right here in Exodus chapter 10. It's the same breath. God's word never has a problem with this. You and I bristle against it, though. But this is talked about all over the scriptures. Now, notice also in verse 1, it's not only Pharaoh's heart that's hardened, it's also Pharaoh's servants. So the impact of God's plan to see his sovereign rule come to fruition is spreading even amongst his very servants. He is working in the hearts of Pharaoh and in the hearts of even his servants. He is in complete control. Yet Moses is there to show more signs. Verse two. So we're we're going to Pharaoh and we're showing these signs in order that three, for, for three reasons that we read about at the very least. First, Moses is to go and show these signs to Pharaoh in order that if you notice that the next generation may be told of the wonders of the Lord. That little side note was in there, which has not been present in the other um, plague accounts. So God says this to Moses in a really interesting way. He says, you, verse two, you, singular, not Israel, you, Moses, may tell in the hearing of your son, singular, and of your grandson, singular, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians or how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. <clears throat> and it's as if it's being written here that Moses is standing in as a singular representative of the whole people of Israel. The point is, of course, is that yes, God wants all of the children of Israel to know what's happening here. They want all of the children of Israel to know about the glorious wonders performed in the Exodus, but that's not how he says it here. Moses, 
I am doing this so that you will tell your son and your grandson. Moses is standing here in Exodus chapter 10 as a representative for the whole people of God. It's like we're getting a, uh, a glimpse of Moses as a mediator, as a representative of one person representing the whole people of Israel. And this is exactly, we know later in Exodus, what he ends up doing in Exodus 32 and 33. And what the scholars and what the, the seminary language for this is that Moses here in this story is a type of Christ. He's a shadow of Christ, of our great representative to come that will represent you and I to God. And we see a shadow of it here in Moses with the people of Israel. I would encourage you to go read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it talks about this whole idea and what's going on here. I don't have time to dig into all that here, but it's really worth a read. This understanding of Moses as a representative and how it's a type of Christ. So at any rate, he's going, and he's going to show these things. He's going to show these signs that the next generation may know the wonders of the Lord. And Moses is standing as a representative of God's people. Secondly, look back at verse 1. He is to go because of God's glory. He is, he is going to be served by the mockery or dealing harshly with the Egyptians. Right? Now this should remind us of maybe a New Testament passage that we're familiar with. Something that Paul once said. So why is it that God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh? Like, why would he do that? What is going on here? Well, Paul addresses this exact thing because Paul knew that we had a hard time grappling with this, that God's people even then had a hard time reconciling these things. And the apostle Paul in the New Testament explains this exact situation to us in Romans chapter 9. So here it is. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Just a couple of verses Go back and read all of chapter 9. We'll help give you some pretense, but we're just going to go here as Paul is explaining the sovereignty of God and the mercy of God. Romans 9.16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul is highlighting the fact this is not because I just... One people, these people are really good and these people are really bad. It's no, it's up to God and His sovereignty. His mercy alone decides what's happening. And Paul is amplifying, Paul is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 33. This whole argument that he gets in chapter 9, we're going to go back to. He's, he's expanding in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. The same word, he's playing on the same word picture, uh, Exodus 33. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And Paul explains this. So Paul is quoting Exodus 33 when explaining God's sovereignty and God's mercy. And so Paul explains this by appealing to the way that God dealt with Pharaoh. 
So we're going to read verses Romans 9, 17 through 23 to get the whole context here of really what the Apostle Paul is looking back into the Exodus story, into how God dealt with Pharaoh so that we might understand the nature and character of our God. All right, so Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. So he's quoting that I may show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then he will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Meaning God's will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which has been prepared beforehand? For glory. That comes right out of Exodus 10 2. That comes right out of Exodus 10 2. God sends Moses to show these signs to the hardened Pharaoh. Why? Why would he do that? So that the glory of God would be made known. So that the glory of God would be talked about by your sons and by your grandsons by your daughters and your granddaughters. Thirdly, what's going on here? He does this so that Israel will know that he is the Lord. A lot of times we focus on Egypt because they're easy to pick on. How do they not get this? What is going on here? Israel still needs to come to grips and come to terms with the claims of God. And so in this introduction, we're beginning to be reminded again that God is sovereign and that his providence, that his care, that his protection over his people has specific purposes so that the generations will hear the story of God, what he's done, how he's dealt with them, how he's protected them, how he's loved them, how he's delivered them so that they will love and worship him forevermore. And so his glory would be displayed. His own people need to know this too. So that's the first thing we see in this great passage. Second thing, we have only have a couple more, that God's mercy is revealed in his warning. We see that in verses three through, three through six. So uh, Moses and Aaron come into Pharaoh's court and they deliver yet another warning. And it's an amazing thing because this warning threatens that God is going to do something uh, supremely even more devastating than what's happened even before. He is going to decreate. He's literally going to deconstruct Egypt and all of its hopes. Let me show you what I mean. God is basically threatening like a knockout blow to Egypt here. It's remarkable. So Moses' opening remarks in verse 3 to Pharaoh get to the very heart of the contest here, get to the very heart of this Pharaoh versus God. 
they get to the, the, the very heart, and it's that, that Pharaoh must be humbled, and the people of God must worship. Look at his words. Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they might serve me. So two things we see here. You are going to be humbled, Pharaoh, and my people are going to worship me. That's pretty bold. And over and over and over and over and over again, if you've been here for many weeks, we've heard that claim. Pharaoh, I'm going to put you in your place, and my people are going to worship me, so let them go. Um, But notice, especially as you look at verses 4 through 7, the nature of this threat. So this is where things get a little crazy. Egypt has already been ravaged by seven plagues. The seventh plague, the hail, remember the giant storm, the hailstorm that came down and just broke and destroyed everything. Everything that was left in the field was just busted and damaged. And if you listen, last week, there was a few pods that hadn't yet come up that were part of the crop rotation and they were about to bloom because they were late in season. Well, God is about to deal a death blow to Egypt with this next one. Their only hope was these last remaining crops that would feed the multitudes of the people of Egypt and all their servants and all their children and all the people in the land. And if the locusts came, um, Egypt faces a situation of unparalleled difficulty. There is no way to feed anyone because locusts come and eat everything in their path and you cannot stop them from doing it. No human hand can stop them. God is decreating. God is deconstructing Egypt, if you will. And God is perfectly consistent in his prophetic pronouncements. And the purpose of this, why is he doing this? The purpose of this warning is mercy. A lot of times we hear warnings and we think they're mean. The purpose of the warnings of God are the mercy of God. Why? so that people would hear the warning and they would produce in them repentance and show all the more the glory of God. So warnings in the scripture, side note, when we're given warnings, they are the mercy of God in our lives that we wouldn't run headlong into what we think is right because we think we know is best. God's saying, no, do not go there. I'm warning you, if you do, this will be the consequence. That is the mercy of God in our lives. That we would hear, thank you, Lord. And it would produce repentance. We would turn and we would glorify God. That he would be kind enough to tell us. The warning is the mercy of God. Verse 7 through 11. uh, The warning of God is starting to fracture the court of Pharaoh. Descent is breaking out in Egypt. Um, the courtiers here, having just survived this horrific hailstorm, and now they hear, there's locusts about to come? Everything this guy Moses said that this God is gonna do has come to pass. And he's telling us there's locusts, and they kind of go nuts on Pharaoh. There's dissent. This is the first time we're seeing the people in the court kind of stand up to Pharaoh. And they say, Pharaoh, basically, if you lost your mind, you are destroying the land before your eyes. 
The plagues are having an effect on them. Their hearts are hard, though, remember? The beginning of this, verse 1 and 2. Um, God was hardening their hearts, so they're not in the mood to give a total compromise to all that God is doing, but they start to want to negotiate with God. Whole side application, I could have a whole sermon on how do we negotiate with God when our hearts begin to get hardened to his warnings and truth in us? We said, well, God, if I do this, will you just let me do it? Right? That's a sermon for another day. We don't have time, though I want to go there. <laughs> Michael, Michael, you pick it up next week. Um, so they make this concessionary contract with God's people, and they begin to negotiate. Moses said, I want every one of us to go. Women, children, our flocks, everyone, so that we can have a feast to the Lord and worship God and bring him glory. And they say, no, 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 this is, you're, you, you're not, Moses, we're not letting everyone go. We'll let the men go, but you leave the women and the children here. Why? So that you can come back because you're, you're our labor force. So we can't have you all leave. So they try to compromise with the Lord. But Moses will not compromise. Why? Because God will not share his glory or his people with anyone. Compromise with the world is not an option. Compromise with the world is not an option. And then if you look at 12 through 15, the plague of the locust is commanded and then described. And here, this is terrifying. What we see here is God and God's sovereign rule. He is reversing the creation provisions that we've seen in the judgments of Egypt. Let me give you two examples. What do I mean here? He's reversing the creation provisions. What's happening here? Well, when the locusts come into the land, the land is basically, it tells us, it gives us some very uh, stark uh, descriptions. The land is going to be defoliated. It even ends with, there will not be one green thing left in the land, right? The locusts will come and defoliate. The greenery is going to be gone. The food is going to be gone. There is going to be nothing left to eat. The result of that is going to be mass starvation. Famine is going to occur. What does that remind you of? Well, first off, it might remind you of Israel's, Israel's experience in Egypt where God had to provide for them in the time of famine. And later in Genesis. So he's going to remove the food from Egypt and the people of Egypt will starve. Great famine and God will have to come through. But it also reminds us of something else that's happening. Uh-oh, there we go. Got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, remember, Moses is writing that one as well. In verse 5, we read this. This is when God is creating. God is making the earth. God is making the land. He's making man and woman. <clears throat> verse two, chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, that verse is to tell us something about God's creation. There was a problem. It wasn't a problem for God, but it was a problem for us. What's going on here? 
The problem is there isn't any food. There wasn't a bush of the field. There wasn't a small plant of the field. There was nothing springing up in the land so that when God made man, there was nothing to eat. And when men don't eat, we die. It's bad news. Therefore, God in his mercy in Genesis, in creation, what does he do? He creates a rich garden and he fills it with plants, he fills it with fruit, he fills it with life, he fills it with sustenance so that man and woman can thrive on all that he's given to them in creation. So that they can flourish. In Exodus chapter 10, we see God stripping that away. Devastating. God is removing this creational provision and blessing from Egypt. He's decreating, he's deconstructing all that's happening. The judgments of creation are that God is reversing his created order here so that they would wake up from. We're gonna see it even more next week. You're like, well, that sounds like a stretch. Well, next week is the plague of darkness. When's the last time that total darkness and devastation and chaos and black filled the earth so that no one could see? You've got to go back to Genesis 1. And when there was darkness and nothingness, what was it? It was chaos, it was death, it was disorder, and God had to enter in. And then we're going to go one step further, we're going to see the plague of death. He reverses life itself. So we see you know, food, defoliation, deconstruction. We see darkness, and then we're going to see death itself, the plagues. He is decreating his creational provisions in these plagues. Chaos, emptiness, torment. He's giving us a picture of hell. Disobedience to the word of God running away from the word of God, not repenting from the word of God, and he's showing them the consequence. It's terrifying. And finally, verses 16 through 20, Pharaoh, again, like last week, gives a superficial confession. Once again, he lies, he's dishonest, God hardens his heart. Um, remember, God, or Pharaoh thought he was a god, he thought he was the sun god Ra, many believe the the Egyptians worshipped. And when Pharaoh, when the Pharaohs died in Egypt, they believed that they uh, were everyone else in their sort of ethos of uh, understanding the gods. Everyone else was judged by the gods based on their lives. Pharaoh went straight to the realm of the gods. That's what he believed. And here we see God saying, no, no, no. This is not how this works. You and I are not on the same plane. In fact, you're now apologizing to my mediator that you've made such a grave mistake. Why? Because you want the pain to stop, not because you're repentant. Pharaoh's repentance is what I like to call strategic remorsefulness. And there's a whole other sermon in that too um, that I think we've all fallen into and that we all struggle with. I'm really, really sorry I got caught. I'm really, really sorry it didn't go the way I had hoped. God, change my circumstance rather than God, change my heart. 
He, he's remorseful because he wants the situation to relent, but the minute it relents, he goes back to his old ways. And then God has to step back in and humble him again and again and again until he will finally break him and show him that he is sovereign. So you're like, wow, that was a chipper sermon. Um, <laughs> I know there's, there's no room for funny stories with the locusts, right? What do we learn from all of this? Like, what's the point? What do we learn from all this? Um, well, we can learn a lot here. But I think one of the things that we learn is that a lot of times in this world, we don't understand all that God is doing. We don't understand his providence. We don't understand his, his sovereignty. We can't really see his hand and his fingerprints on certain things that are happening in and around us. I mean, yesterday, two days ago, it seems constantly we are inundated with things that we are terrified by and that we just don't understand and we don't see the point of it all. Kind of like I would imagine plague after plague after plague after plague would happen. What's going on here? Um, but here in Exodus 10, we're actually given the reason. Like God lets us peel back the window so we can see what's going on here. And he gives us the reason why he's doing these things. And that doesn't often happen. That doesn't often happen in our lives. Because a lot of times we just sort of feel like we're just, we're existing or maybe we're pawns in this great story. Well, if God is sovereign and like, what's, you know, what's the point of it all, right? It, I, it doesn't make sense. I'm confused. And God is saying to us again, he's saying, don't forget. He wants us to cling to this. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I will bring my enemies to their knees. And everything that he is doing in and around us, he is doing for his glory so that the generations underneath us and the generations to come will tell of his glory and his majesty because he is good. Everything that he's doing Everything that he's doing in these plagues, it's for the good of the Egyptians and for the glory of God. And so church, this morning, if you maybe heard nothing else and all that other stuff was like, what? This is crazy. Hear this, this morning. God can be trusted. Even when we don't understand what's going on around us, we can cling to his word. He can be trusted. He is good. He is right. He is true. And we can hold to him. And we can never let go because he will always be about our good and his glory. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are unchanging. We thank you that you can be trusted. We thank you that, Lord, even in the midst of what seems like chaos, what seems like certain things in even each of our lives that we just don't understand reason for things, God, that we would trust your word. They would, we wouldn't try to negotiate with you, God, but that we would wholeheartedly embrace what you have said, believe it, and walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've given us. God, I just, I pray for those that are in here this morning. Um, who want to negotiate with you, God? 
would you break into their hearts? Would your word become true and good and right? And would they bend a knee to you, maybe for the very first time? In your sovereign goodness and your mercy, Lord, would you invade the hearts of the men and women here this morning, no matter where they're at? And Lord, would you produce in us a people of repentance that when we hear your word, we would turn from whatever catastrophe we may be headed toward and we would run to you because you are right and you can be trusted. Even when we don't understand the outcome, give us courage, give us strength, help us along the way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Church, let's stand.